25. I'll be there in just a minute. If you've made it the previous two Sundays, congratulations. You're 100% attendance for 2023. So congratulations on that. You look great. Those New Year's resolutions are already paying off dividends. Cannot believe it's already 23. Man, last year flew by. But I am excited for all that God has in store uh, for this church, for my family, for myself. And let me tell you, I think the Lord has a, a good sense of humor because last year I gave Pastor Micah so much grief for using now to him as his word of the year. Like, Pastor, that's three words, not one word. It's called word of the year, not words of the year. What are you doing? And then the Lord gives me two words to use this year. So the Lord has a sense of humor. And then Pastor Michael one-ups me by making up his own word with him possible. Um, and all the glory to God for that because that is a beautiful word that shows us that all things are possible with Christ Jesus. And my word flows right with his word. Um, but I just want to take a minute and share my previous words uh, through the years. This is actually my sixth time uh, sharing my word of the year with the congregation. does not feel like I've been here that long, um, but I'm starting to get up there. These gray hairs are starting to multiply. It's because of y'all, by the way. But uh, my first year in 2018, my word was grow, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 2019 was identity that we put our identity in Christ and the world tries to give us labels and titles uh, outside of Christ Jesus, but the only label that matters is that uh, the label that says child of God. And then in 2020, uh, my word was canceled, interestingly enough, that we are no longer our sin and shame and Christ took our sin debt and died for us on the cross and our sin was canceled. Everything else was canceled in 2020 as well, but you know, 21 was first, that we put God first. Last year was knowledge, uh, that we come to know Christ more and more and more. And I think uh, the disciple group definitely did that. We read a book that was about that large called Systematic Theology. If you ever want to feel real dumb, you should read that. Um, I don't know how much I took away from it, but I'm slightly more intelligent about the Lord now because of reading that. There are a lot of smart men in this world. I do not claim to be one of them. Uh, but that leads me to this year's word, though. His will. All I want for my life, all I want for my family, all I want for this church, this community, my youth ministry, this city, this country, this world, is for God's will to be done. Because if you truly know the Lord as Lord and Savior, that's what you want. You want God's will in your life. Because you cannot meet Jesus and stay the same. It's an, actually, it's impossible. If you cannot meet Jesus and stay the same. Like, you can join a church and you can remain unchanged. Like, you can do that. You can even do great things in the church. Like you can volunteer for Children's Church. You can volunteer for BBS. You can go on mission trips. You can do all the things. You can know all the things in the Bible and have them stored up in your head. And you can remain unchanged changed you can be the greatest theologian on the entire planet but if it's not done for the love of christ it doesn't mean uh anything you can write the most beautiful christian music you can have the most beautiful voice singing that Christ christian music but if it's not for jesus it's meaningless all right but if you don't know the resurrected christ it's all for naught when you meet the resur resurrected christ it is transforming and get this it's permanent 
And if you are transformed by the blood of Jesus, you will want to do his will. All right. A.W. Tozer once said, outside the will of God, there's nothing I want. Inside the will of God, there's nothing I fear. Is that true of us? Do we want to go where Jesus wants to take us? Do we want to do what Jesus calls us to do? Because if we're honest with ourselves, what we typically want is we want what we want, and we want that to be God's will. We want our will in heaven, not heaven's will in our life. Because that would make my life so much easier, right? Like, and understand, I'm preaching to myself first and foremost, and if it convicts you, then praise the Lord. But when I prepared this sermon, there was like this big glass mirror just staring me right in my face the whole time I'm staring and coming and writing this and letting the Lord use me. Because if, if God just followed our plans, life would be so much easier, right? We at least think that. We at least think if God would just give us everything we wanted, life would be so much easier. And I realized that if God had just followed my plan for my life, I would be working at Anheuser-Busch loading big pallets of empty bottles onto a line. And I'd have been doing it for about 14 years now. Nothing wrong with that. It's an honest living. It's a great job. But if that would have happened, I would have never met my wife. I would have never had my son, Judah. I definitely wouldn't be a pastor, and I would have little to no relationship with the Lord. So I can say with my whole heart that his ways are definitely better than my ways. We just need to learn to get out of his way and follow him. Because God's will is going to take us out of our comfort zone. All right, it will get uncomfortable. I can guarantee you that. It may take you on a career change, like Simon and Andrew, they were fishermen, and then followed Jesus, or Matthew, he was a tax collector, and then followed Jesus. You will not, you may not be called into a career change, I'm not saying that, but your life will look different. It may even take you over to India eating chicken and coming back and being sick for a month. That might be in the will of God for your life, because our pastor just went through that. He did the best exercise plan ever. He went to India, got sick, lost a ton of weight, all right? It will look a lot of different, it'll look a lot different to a lot of different people. And for some people, it will be even difficult, and in some cases, it might even be dangerous. Because someone once said the safest place to be is in the will of God. I understand, and I, I want to believe that whoever said that meant it well, but frankly, it's just not true. It's not true. The will of God is not safe. It's good, but it's not safe. The 12 disciples were in the will of God. How did it work out for them? It worked out wonderfully, but they all had horrible deaths. Except for John, he went to the island of Patmos, and was, uh, which is a rock quarry. So he's like 90 years old working at a rock quarry, not exactly being a greeter at Walmart to finish out your golden years. And he was only sent there because, according to church tradition, Rome tried to kill him by putting him in a vat of oil, uh, boiling oil, and that didn't work, so they sent him off so that he wouldn't be a headache anymore. That doesn't sound really safe to me. Maybe you want an example outside of Scripture. How about missionary Adoniram Judson? This guy went almost, uh, spent almost 40 years in Burma as a missionary. Him and his wife, uh, Nancy, and their three children. The Judsons were frequently equated with sickness, with suffering, and with death. They lost three children. His wife, Nancy, got so sick she had to go back to the United States for two years. Shortly after Nancy got back, Burma was at war with England, and the Burmese Empire imprisoned nearly all Western men because they thought they were spies for the British government. So Adoniram spent 19 months in two different prisons. One of those prisons, uh, the guards were convicted murderers 
whose sentences uh, were, were tossed out to serve as jailers. So that's fun. A lot of prisoners died in those 19 months. But Nancy would bribe, beg, plead um, so that she could provide food for her imprisoned husband. She even managed to give him his personal pillow, which had sewn his translation of the Burmese uh, Bible in it. All the while, Nancy was nursing an infant and raising two adopted children. Adoniram was eventually released from prison so he could um, help navigate with the um, treaty between Burma and England, but the end of the war was not the end of their suffering. Nancy is going to die very shortly after that, followed by their two-year-old Maria Judson just six months after Nancy died. But take this, take this away. During his ministry and during Nancy's ministry, they helped lead hundreds of Burmese people and people from the Karen tribe into knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He translated the Bible and other Christian writings into two different languages. He wrote numerous booklets and tracts about different uh, theological topics, and, and he encouraged Baptists in America to unite for the sake of missions. Does any of that sound like he went through, would you call that safe? They didn't do it because it was safe. They did it because the Lord was calling them to do it, and they wanted to go where the Lord was calling them to go. They want to be in God's will for their life. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. How can we be in the Lord's will? What does that even look like? What does it even mean to be in God's will? So my verse for the year, which is the most important part of the word of the year, is Psalm 25, 4 and 5. And that will be our jumping off point, our launch pad. We'll be all over scripture for a while. We'll settle down in 1 Kings 18, and then we'll uh, get out of here to go get some uh, lunch. But if you're able and willing, I'd ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. And it's Psalm 25, 4 and 5. And this is the word of the Lord. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, may your will be done in this church, in our lives, in our family, and in this world, Lord. Lord, if there's someone in here who does not have a personal relationship with you, may today be the day that they put their trust in you. That would be the first step of obedience. Lord, speak for we're listening. May outside distractions stay outside during this time. May you be glorified, may you be honored, may you be worshipped. Amen. You may be seated. We can take a lot out of these two verses, but like any good pastor, we're just going to take out three. So, first things first, to be in God's will, you have to know God's word. To be in God's will, you have to be in God's word. Look at that. Make me to know your ways. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. If you want to hear God tell you what to do, pick up your Bible and read it out loud. Because the Bible is the gift from God on how we can know him more and more and more. The whole book points to this truth. God is the main character of the Bible. If you want to know him, read it. It's not about man. But to know that, we got to read it. And that's part of the problem while we aren't following God's will in our life is because we aren't in God's word. You faithfully come to church, and that's great. I am pro-church. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Being at church is amazing. I believe Pastor Micah is one of the best pastors in Jacksonville. 
He brings us God's word faithfully every single week. But that's the problem. Too many of us in here are being spoon-fed when we should be feeding ourselves. Don't get me wrong. Pastor Micah or myself or Pastor Mike will gladly spoon-feed you the word every week. Like, I'll even make little choo-choo sounds and the here comes the airplane noises while going along with it. But you have to follow God's will, and to do that, you got to read his word. And how do I read God's word? That's a great question. And that's already, that sermon's already been done because Pastor Micah did it a couple of Wednesdays back. So I'd encourage you to go back on our YouTube page and read how to read God's word. He did a really good job breaking that down through the reap. But the Bible talks about us not feeding ourselves and not getting in the word. And it's in Hebrews 5.12. And it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Some of y'all should be teaching. Some of y'all should be teaching, but you're too busy letting yourself be a little fat baby and getting the milk when you should be eating steak and T-bone, and you're not growing. You aren't growing as a follower of Christ because you're not reading his word. It's a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And every word, every word, and every word of God's word proves to be true. And if your beliefs and your thoughts do not align with this scripture, then it's not you, or excuse me, it is not scripture that's wrong. You're wrong, Scooter. You better understand that. If you believe that there is more than one way to the Father, you're going against scripture. If you think it's okay to drink like a fish, smoke like a chimney, and cuss like a sailor, you might want to reconsider a few things. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's all about relationships. Because just because you do those things, Jesus will not love you any less than he loves you right now. You, Jesus loves you just as much on your best day and just as much on your worst day. But let me ask you this. Does the way you live your life reflect that you love Jesus? Does the way you live your life reflect that you love the Lord? I know it's right standing before God, not right behavior. But if you have met the resurrected Jesus, you are a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that can be really difficult sometimes, though, if we're being honest with ourselves. Because we are to live as living sacrifices unto the Lord. But the problem is, being a living sacrifice, you can crawl off the altar. So we need to check ourselves and understand the sin in our lives cannot stay there. And in today's world, we live in such a time where sin is celebrated. We are not to be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that word renewal in the Greek, it's not a one-time renewal. It's a constant renewal. It's a constant renovation. You are constantly renewing your relationship with the Lord and getting your mind on him. And how can you be constantly renewing your mind? By changing what goes in it. It's pretty simple. And the way you change what goes in it is by changing what you watch, what you listen to, and what you read. It's not difficult. Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever told, the Sermon on the Mount, after he tells his disciples how to pray, and if you're not familiar on how to pray according to Jesus, part of it is 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if you want to pray like Jesus, pray for God's will in your life. But after he finishes telling his disciples how to pray, he talks about laying up treasures in heaven. And while doing so, he says the eye is the body of the lamp. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. Not that your eyes are good and like you need glasses or anything, but that what you are focused on determines how the rest of your body is. If you're focused on God, if you're focused on reading his word, if you're focused on meditating in prayer with him, then Jesus is saying your whole body will reflect that. But on the flip side, he said, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So if you aren't focused on God and doing other things, then the opposite is true. And if this is true of you, let me encourage you this morning, start reading his word. On the back of your bulletins every week, we have a Bible reading plan. If you don't know what to read, start there. There's a thousand apps in this world. Pick a Bible app. You always have a phone on you. You can always have the word of God with you. And so when you're using the bathroom, you don't have to scroll through Facebook or Instagram. You can scroll through the word of God. It's not that hard. And if you want to be in the will of God, it starts by reading his word. And then secondly, to be in God's will, you're going to have to work. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. In just these two little verses, we see that God requires us to action to be in his will. If we are to be taught, that requires us to learn. If we are to be led, that means you have to go somewhere, either mentally or physically. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. The biggest mark you leave on God's kingdom should not be your butt mark on the pew cushion. Okay? Meaning we got to get to work. And that's a problem in our society because people aren't willing to work anymore. But it's part of the Christian life. God may not call you to the mission field, but he has placed you in an area of influence or in a certain situation for you to reach the unreach. Okay? It might even be as simple as walking down the hall in your own home and having honest conversation with a loved one or picking up the phone and calling someone you know that doesn't love the Lord. There is someone you know that doesn't love the Lord. God is calling you to do something because when I said that, someone came to mind. Okay? God is calling you to do something because when I said that, someone you know who doesn't love the Lord came into your mind. And you need to have that conversation with them. You want God to do something? There you are. Get to work. And I pray you will start conversations with them. It can be as simple as inviting them to church. I wouldn't recommend it when I do it. I, I try to make y'all feel convicted and terrible about yourselves. But if, you, if, you, if you're going to invite them, invite them when Pastor Mike is here. Um, but just focus on being on Jesus. That was Jesus' final instructions for his disciples, wasn't it? Was to go out and make disciples. And we take a lot of stock in our society in last words, don't we? Some of the more famous last words we have heard is Ben Franklin, when he was dying, his last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. When John Wayne was dying at the age of 72 in his home in L.A., he turned to his wife and said, of course I know who you are. You're my girl. I love you. And then he died. When Groucho Marx was dying, he had one last quip when he said, this is no way to live. Basketball, yeah, finally somebody got that one. That went right over the first service's head. I was like, y'all know who Groucho Marx is. I've just seen, like, pictures of him. 
all right? Because they're old. Don't tell them I said that. All right. Basketball legend, Pistol Pete Maravich, was, uh, was at a pickup basketball game, and his last words were, I feel great. I don't think he felt that great, actually. There's probably some dude in Oceanway's last words that have been, hold my beer and watch this. I'm not positive, though. I'm just speculating. Einstein's last words were in German, so we have no idea what his last words were actually because the nurse in the room did not speak German. But we do know the last words of Christ before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that co-worker who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord falls in that category. That loved one who doesn't know the Lord, that falls in that category. We need to tell people about the Lord, are we? Man, I pray that we are. Because that's part of the work Christ has called us into. But you have to understand that Christianity is not for lazy people. You cannot be lazy and be a follower of Jesus. The Christian life is actually incompatible with a lazy person. Because I want you to listen to these words of Paul. And this is 2 Timothy 2. And I just want you to listen to the jobs that he compares to followers of Christ. And tell me if it's compatible with lazy people. Starting in verse 1, it says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in the civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. He is telling his follower, he's telling followers of Jesus to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I never served in the military, but lazy would not be an attribute you would attach to someone serving as a soldier, I wouldn't think. Because my, my mind actually went to Brother Steve. Um, and if you're not familiar with Brother Steve, he is a um, former Marine, and he continues to serve this church, um, and no one would ever call him lazy. And if they did, it'd probably be the last words they ever said. <laughs> I have no idea how old Brother Steve is, but I am confident he is young enough to still take me back to the woodshed. Not only does Paul use terms like soldier, but he also uses terms like athletes. Athletes train to compete, and they compete by the rules set before them. At least most of them do. There's a, there's a Tom Brady joke in there somewhere, Christopher. They train like crazy. I see a ton of new faces in the gym right now. I love working out. Um, I do it at 4.30 because most people are still asleep, and I don't have to deal with them. Um, but now all of a sudden, these New Year's resolutioners are popping up. And they go from zero to 100 real quick. Like two weeks ago, they were sitting on the couch, and now all of a sudden, they're in the gym for 14 days straight for three hours a day. Uh, typically, that's not very sustainable. You actually have to build endurance and prepare your body for a goal. That's very similar to the Christian life. Because it always makes me smile a little bit uh, when people say they don't go to church because church is full of hypocrites. It's kind of the whole point on why we need a Savior, folks. Yeah, I'm a hypocrite. Duh. I need Jesus. 
we all, we have people of all ages and backgrounds coming in this place to build their relationship with the Lord. They're wanting to strengthen their walk with Jesus. They want to continue their walk in sanctification. Some people are further along the lines of others when it comes to their walk for Jesus. So why would you expect everyone to be perfect in the church? When you go to the gym, do you expect everyone to be ripped and muscular and in shape when you get in there? No, of course not. You know you are going to see all types of people with all different types of body shapes in different stages of fitness. It's no different than the church. But then Paul uses one more occupation in these sets of verses, and that is of a farmer. Growing crops is not easy. It's actually back-breaking work. When my grandfather was still alive, he, he lived out in McClinney, and he had a little garden. It was not big, but he would grow, like, corn and eggplants and all that kind of stuff, and I would help him with it, and it was hard work. It was sweaty. It was dirty. Got to shoot some animals to keep them out of the garden. That was kind of fun, but... It was worth it. That fried eggplant was the best. But none of these terms that Paul uses in these verses show us that laziness and Christianity are compatible. Couch potatoes and lovers of ease are foreign to the high calling and high privilege of the Christian life. To be in God's will, you've got to work. But you also, and this is the third and final truth, don't get too excited. We're still here for a little bit. To be in God's will, you will have to wait. For you, I wait all the day long. There was this wonderful, great, one of my favorite theologians in Gainesville. His name was Tom Petty. And he said, the way I ate is the hardest part. And how true is that? If there is anything I struggle with, it is waiting. When the Lord puts something on my heart, I try to make it happen immediately. Whether it's an idea in ministry or with the youth, or getting something done around the house, or buying something. If I get the idea, I want to do it as fast as I can. Two-day shipping ain't fast enough, okay? If it's something I want, I'm not waiting around for a birthday or a holiday. I'm just going to go out and buy it. I struggle with the wait. Hopefully, I imagine some of you can relate to this. I know Dean can relate to this. He has been waiting for the Mets to win another World Series <laughs> since longer than I've been alive. Okay, but the thing is, we see all throughout Scripture people waiting on the Lord. Abraham was promised an heir through his wife Sarah. They had to wait 25 years to have that child. But the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And according to Hebrews 6.15, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He patiently waited for 25 years. How impatient of a people are we? If a video on our phone doesn't work right away, we get irritated and want to throw our phone. Doesn't matter that back in the 1900s, we had to wait like 15 minutes for the dial-up to get on the computer. And you had to use your landline to do that. Y'all remember that? A landline youth um, was a phone attached to the wall, and it had a cord. You could only go so far with it. You probably got it at your grandparents' house still. Um, and the, the scary thing was there was no such thing as caller ID, so you just picked it up and prayed it was somebody you actually wanted to talk to. Um, Y'all would have hated it because you would have to call, and the mom or dad would pick up, and you would have to talk to the mom and dad before you got to talk to the boy or girl you were actually wanting to talk to. So that's tough. God bless technology. 
But he had to wait 25 years, and we are so impatient. I'm so impatient. My wife can give you story after story. I'm not going to let her go up here and tell you, but she could tell you stories. Or how about Joseph? Joseph's another good story of having to wait. Joseph was his father's favorite son. I can relate to that. Which caused his brothers to hate him. Also can relate to that. He also had dreams which showed him ruling over his family one day. And this guy actually told his brothers about the dream. Probably should have kept that little bit of information to himself. So naturally, his brothers wanted to kill him, but instead they staged his death and sold him off into slavery. After being sold into slavery by his brothers and then thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit, Joseph made use of every opportunity that came his way. He interpreted the dreams of fellow prisoners, including one who served as cupbearer for the pharaoh. The interpretation Joseph made of his dream was that the cupbearer would be released from prison. Joseph, Joseph asked this guy, hey, remember me, show me some kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh when you get on out. Problem is, cupbearer didn't remember. So two years passed before Pharaoh needed his own dream uh, interpreted, and the cupbearer then remembered all of a sudden, oh yeah, there's Joseph guy, I was supposed to remember him. He interpreted dreams. And what ends up happening is Joseph goes on to be the number two most powerful person in Egypt. He was like the assistant to the regional manager of Egypt. So that was pretty cool. And then Moses left Egypt after killing a man and was with his wife's family for 40 years before God came to him in the burning bush. And Moses and the Israelites were made to wait in the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. David had to wait for 15 years before coming king after Saul. And one of my personal favorite stories where we're going to end here today, which you still got time, so don't get too excited, occurs in 1 Kings 18. Elijah is a prophet of God and was a prophet of God when the rain stopped for three and a half years. There was a drought in the land for three and a half years. This was during the time of King Ahab. He was an evil king. God had made the rain stop, turned the faucet off, so to speak. And there is a drought all throughout the land. Now, Elijah confronts this evil king. And after being the cause, because uh, Ahab was pretty much the cause of all, or Ahab was the cause of a lot of the problems for the people of Israel. Because since the drought, the worship of false idols only increased. They didn't actually turn back. Like when the going gets tough, you should turn back to Jesus. I don't know if y'all know that. When, you know, life's not going right, turn to Jesus. Typically makes it better. Not typically, it does make it better. But these people turned away from Jesus and started turn, turning to the little G gods of the world, like the false idols. You needed rain, they had a rain god. You needed a baby, they had a god of fertility. You know, you have a problem, there was a god for it. And God doesn't share his glory, folks. Understand that. And I want to read this event, and it's in 1 Kings 18. We're going to start in verse 20, and we're just going to go through this and uh, we're going to take away some, uh, some crucial truths from this event of this three-and-a-half-year drought. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. How long are you going to go limping between two different opinions? If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord our God 
and came to bring salvations to sinners like you and me, why are you not following his will, but your own will? And if the Lord is God, follow him. But if the world, then follow the world. Don't bounce between one side and another. But then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am only left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. And you call upon the name of your God, and I shall call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. If your God starts the fire, then he is God. If my God is the one true God, then he will start the fire. So they agree. Elijah defers to the home team of Baal and lets them go first. So in verse 26 it says, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they made. See, what's happening here is Elijah made uh, an altar, put a slab of meat on it, Bell, the prophets of Bell built an altar, altar, put some wood on it, put the bull on there, and now they're crying out to Bell to start the fire. But Bell didn't start the fire. See, these prophets put their trust, they put their faith in the wrong thing, and they limped around doing it. Pagan worship dance is what that is. And they are totally into it because they have put their faith in Bell. And now look at verse 27. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it makes me feel better as a human being. One of my spiritual gifts is the gift of sarcasm. Anybody else can relate to that? I'm so sarcastic, some people can't even tell if I'm being sarcastic or not. It's awesome. Elijah also has the gift of sarcasm because in verse 27 he says, And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. He is openly making fun of them and this foolishness. In our culture today, the prophets of Baal would be like, you hurt my feelings. I need a safe space. And I know, I know, I know, you're all little snowflakes and skittles and rainbows and cannot do anything wrong in your eyes of your adult. But understand, not all viewpoints and all cultures are created equal. There are beliefs in this world that are downright stupid and deserve to be called stupid. Some are destructive and deserve to be mocked. See, Elijah is sitting there, and he's looking at these clowns that are building this altar, and he's mocking them, saying, maybe he's just too busy to answer you. Maybe he has taken the Browns to the Super Bowl. Flush twice and save a life, Bell. Maybe he has fell in a, fell, or maybe he fell asleep while watching TV. He can't hear you. Try crying louder. Even though they are crying out loud to their God with all they have, he's not responding. Why isn't he responding? Because he's not there. Because Baal is a made-up thing. He is like the ping pong. If you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, he's an imaginary friend. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you are worshiping nothing, then in return, you will get nothing. Now here's the crazy part about these folks. Bell doesn't say a word to them. He doesn't respond. So the prophets, instead of recognizing that they are not serving the one true God, they take it to the next level. And they cried aloud, and they started cutting themselves, which was their custom with swords and lances, until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And there was no voice, 
no one answered, no one paid attention. Then it goes on to say that Elijah had them pour four jars of water on the burnt offering and the wood. They did it three times. That would be about 90 gallons of water that they poured on this altar. This was during a three and a half year drought. So you know the people of Israel were going, what in the world is going on? But then in verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God doesn't just send a fire to cover the situation. He sends so much fire it consumes all the water. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah is going to go on to pray for rain seven times. And chapter 18 closes saying, there was a great rain. Praise the Lord. The people turned back to God. While waiting for the drought to be over, people looked for all the wrong answers in all the wrong places. Instead of turning to God, they were turning away from God. When the people recognized who God truly was they fell on their faces and gave him glory then the lord ended the drought you can grow in the way you don't have to turn your back to god instead of turning away from the lord you can actually turn to him the best thing you can do is turn to him church the wait is hard but the wait is even harder without jesus may we wait patiently on the lord and follow his will this year. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then your first step of obedience is to place your trust in him. If anyone is willing to make that declaration today, I pray that you would have the courage to walk up to the front. We would love to have the opportunity to pray with you and talk with you about that. And if you have put your faith in Jesus, I pray you're going to follow his will this year and moving forward. And whatever that looks like, I pray that his will is done in your life. And I want to close with a quote from the Prince of Preachers. His name's Charles Spurgeon. And I think this summarizes this sermon very well. He said, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. I pray that's true of us today. But now I'd ask that you stand with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your will will be done in this church and in our lives. As we saying earlier, Lord, how great is our God. How great are you? That you are the all-consuming one. Lord, that when you do a thing, you don't just do it enough to cover it. You give abundantly more to make sure that there is no doubt that it was God, that it was you. Lord, if there's anyone in here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you are convicting them and pulling on them and telling them to come to you, to follow you, to follow your will for their life. Lord, finish this time as only you can. Amen.